On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations, you have reached the internet's finest podcast for music that sounds better on a Kaiser bun. We're going to jump right into our turntable talk. Uh, Today we're continuing our series on albums that were conceived, written, or recorded in isolation. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Diogenes was the original sloppy bastard. The Greek philosopher, who was the founder of the Cynic movement, was basically Socrates with stink lines and skid marks. He was banished from his home of Sinope for defacing its currency. His dad was in charge of minting the coins. He believed a simple lifestyle was the only way to counteract the corrupt culture, so he disavowed all worldly possessions and became a 'er ne'er-do-well, panhandling for a living. He slept wherever he felt like it, often in an empty wine cask or a bathtub, He would defecate in the streets, urinate on passers-by, and purposefully, loudly masticate his food scraps during public lectures and ceremonies, and then purposefully, loudly masturbate during those same public lectures and ceremonies. When asked about his self-pleasuring proclivities, he replied, If only I could alleviate hunger by rubbing my belly. He prided himself on living a shameless, dog-like existence explaining that he respected how mongrels could live in the present with no anxiety. He loved publicity stunts, like ambling around Athens carrying a lamp, obnoxiously yelling that he was looking for an honest man with no luck. He would mock and belittle Plato and Alexander the Great to their face. And his most famous quote remains, In a rich man's house, there is no place to spit but his face. I really thought it was sit the first time. (laughs) (laughs) That works too. Despite his crude and sardonic behavior, he managed to garner acclaim for his writings and teachings about living in Congress with nature while rejecting the pursuit of wealth, power, and fame. His brutal honesty, dearth of hygiene, and wholehearted dedication to his ideology was renowned far and wide in the ancient world. Once it was said of Philip Roth that he was a great writer, but I wouldn't want to shake his hand, I think that also applies to Diogenes. The Dirty D was eventually captured by pirates and sold into slavery, where he was able to talk himself into being a tutor for the son of nobleman Xeneides, because he seemed like a great guy to babysit your kids, right? His death remains a mystery, attributed to the consumption of raw ox's foot, or maybe octopus, or possibly rabies from a dog bite, or that he just held his own breath until he dropped dead. While the cause of death is unconfirmed, his final arrangements were very clear. 
He left specific instruction for his body to be heaved outside the city walls where it should be feasted upon by wild beasts. His philosophies paved the way for Stoicism, which was the dominant philosophical school for 500 years. He also lends his name to Diogenes Syndrome, which is the behavioral disorder for people who demonstrate extreme self-neglect, compulsively collect animals or garbage, and perpetually live in filth. Think Hoarders, or Pigpen from the Peanuts Gang, or Gary Pusey. Diogenes proves that obscenity, indecency, and squalor has a place outside of the gutter, too. Society has a need for those who mock, shock, and disgust with purpose, if not outright glee. Which brings us to Wayne. Like the filth-encrusted philosopher, the musical duo set forth on a career-long ambition to tear down standard music industry conventions by hook or by crook. To take that which is weird, obnoxious, and unclean, and show it as important as the falsely pristine parts of life. They were never more successful in this endeavor than on their 76-minute slog of a second record, The Pod. Recorded alone together in Dean and Gene Ween's apartment that was a converted barn smack dab in the middle of a horse field, while both were suffering through mono and high on, well, probably most things, the record sounds like you need to scrape off layers and layers of shit and grime to get to the pop tunes hidden within. Underneath the juvenile jokes, the impressive assemblage of vulgarity, fast food orders, molasses-dipped song-smithing, sonic fuckery, squishy atmosphere, and overall friendly misanthropic posturing is a solid and comprehensive American pop music review. Dinner Theater at the Slaughterhouse. So tonight's offering, another scoop of isolation, but this time with a heaping of flies, scotchgard, and glandular fever. If you've ever woken up and found that someone had taken a deuce on your kitchen floor, you've already sort of heard this masterpiece. The sludgiest, brownest record of Ween's illustrious decades-long trouncing of music. Come on, it's a beautiful night for a walk on the beach, wouldn't you say? Got off the sound. Going down. Got awesome sound. Going down. Got an awesome sound. Going down. Got pork, raw egg, cheese, and bacon. Yeah. Stop the tape, dude. Ween started in a New Hope, Pennsylvania middle school typing class when two kids who didn't like each other started talking about music. Aaron Freeman and Mickey Melchiondo were from different worlds, a weirdo and a jock, but bonded over their eclectic taste in music and recreational drugs. They soon decided on a band name and corresponding Ramones-esque moniker of Ween, which was a portmanteau of wet kimono and pendulograph. Actually, it was a combination of wuss and penis. Ah, middle school. The newly christened Gene and Dean Ween soon began recording cassettes of original songs backed by their trusty digital audio tape machine, which would be the band's M.O. for the first ten years of existence. In the early days, the boys would create songs by coming up with ten goofy-sounding song titles and then making music that matched the name of the song. Between 85 and 89, they released six tapes of purposely obnoxious music that, for all its immaturity, was musically adept. 
The strength of their prolific homebrewed output and accompanying wild live shows led them to get signed by Minneapolis label Twin Tone. The band took the best of their early work and some new tunes, releasing the unbalanced, sprawling, party-gone-wrong record Godween Satan, The Oneness. The unhinged double record moves a mile a minute with neither roadmap nor driver, but generally has a bouncy and carefree essence. The songs range from sounding like Prince with a traumatic brain injury to just sounding like regular traumatic brain injury. The twosome would start self-mythologizing by unleashing on the world their personal demon god, the Buknish. Buknish was benevolent to his first worshippers, and the album did fairly well for an indie debut, and they were able to tour Europe. Despite the success, they returned to Solobury, Pennsylvania, and moved in together after getting kicked out of their parents' house. Their humble abode and recording studio for nearly two years was a small apartment that was a fly-infested converted barn surrounded on all sides by Holly Pond Horse Farm. On top of that delightful situation, they also lived in absolute squalor, with hundreds of beer bottles accumulating, unidentifiable smells, and stained carpets from a union of human and animal fluids. They called it The Pod, and it would become a legendary location in the Ween Mythos. More like the big stink than the big pink, if you know what I'm talking about. Gene and Dean both had to work day jobs, but were still basically broke and behind on rent and seemed for the most part just stuck in life. Along with their cat Mandy, the guys holed up in their sickly sanctuary, sharing a bedroom and eventually a nasty case of mononucleosis. With enlarged lymph nodes, high fevers, and generally feeling like bedridden human snot blobs, Languishing in their own sick, there were but two outlets for this challenging existence. Drugs and recording while on drugs. The liner notes boast, In the time this album was completed, we filled up 3,600 hours of tape and inhaled five cans of Scotchgard. Regarding the huffing business, Ween later came out and said that they didn't actually do that ever but they knew a kid in high school who was a connoisseur of the furniture protectant, and it was the most slime bag thing they could think of. That sounds a little bit like having a Canadian girlfriend, though. We've never done that. <laughs> One of their fathers was an upholsterer. Of course they did. <laughs> of course, the ravenous fan base didn't know that and would seek the band out to proudly inhale the product in front of them at shows. Freeman explained what he saw as they kind of turned plaid. It's like a pale green-blue plaid effect. It's not pretty. So yeah, don't do that. Fortunately, he said that didn't happen much after the pod tour. Scotchgard or not, there were plenty of intoxicants employed during the recording. Using the portable Tascam 4-track recorder meant that Ween could record at their own pace whenever they felt inspired with plenty of room for experimentation and manipulation. Guitars and vocals were detuned and shredded to bits. Lots and lots of demos were recorded, which were at first split into two separate tapes, the Bilboa tape and the Big Timmy Wasserman tape. 
Many of the demos not used for the pod ended up on future Ween albums, including their eventual biggest oddball MTV-era hit, Push the Little Daisies. The best tracks, or worse, depending on how you look at it, were selected from the tapes and mastered and excreted on a double-length LP. Incidentally, there's probably a little hyperbole in the whole 3,600 hours of tape, since that is more than five months of straight recording. Nonetheless, there was a whole lot of recording going on. Taken as a whole, a hazy, ominous mood descends on the record. While their debut was infectious... The pod sounds contagious, if not pandemic-y. It's surreal, murky, and unnerving. An overall paranoia and claustrophobic tension takes over the record, particularly in the middle of the album where it seems like it might never end. Much like getting thrust into a black hole, the listener can easily experience motion sickness from vocal rhythm and instruments speeding up and slowing down to unnatural velocities, but then realize that you haven't traveled anywhere at all. Stuck in a sticky event horizon with the Giener and Diener singing dirty jokes and bad accented falsettos. Ween fans have dubbed a term for the band's capacious well of sonic depravity. Brown. A catch-all term for the murky, fuzzy, sludgy, muddled, unsettling, off-putting, and off-kilter sound. Brown is sounding so hideous that it's gorgeous. And the pod is the brownest of the brown. It's umber, mang. Like a long-lost eight-track that has had its tape warped from exposure to glovebox heat, condiment package explosions, and decades of dust. And then spent decades hiding in the anus of a mandrel before finally being thrown into a fish tank. That's not to say that the sound isn't entirely unappealing. The pod sort of sounds like vomiting, but in a good way, like... When your body is done drinking, but your brain isn't, so you eject what you can and get back to business. There's a benefit to such a violent sonic cleansing, an enema of mediocrity. The songs don't shy away from any genre. There's surreal chunks of pop, blues, hard rock, thrash metal, punk, glam, folk, disco, psych, and muzak that can all be identified through an opaque mahogany lens. It's like the results of Beck's Scientology audit. But each of these elements share the same nasty sheen that strangely holds the album together, as if it were a concept record about the state of porta-potties after a particularly gnarly gathering of the juggalos. And there's just enough leftover hallucinogens in the troughs to get a frightening contact high just from the odor. That eclecticism stems from the shared musical influences of the Brothers Ween. You can hear their fandom in almost every song. This isn't a rip-off either. Well, at least one of them is absolutely a rip-off, but we'll get to that later. We're going to go through a few of the more repugnantly goofy, pod-like bits and pieces they may have filched and injected into songs that became their own. They pull in humor, guitars, vocal effects, and rhythms from the Buttle Surfers a few times. Here's one example from the Butthole Surfer's version of American Woman. 
If you've ever listened to Funkadelic, you know where Ween got even more of their potty humor. Here's a little medley of George Clinton at his most odious. Frank Zappa's over-the-top songs about Belch's farts and urine might have played a small part in some of their songs, but Ween and their songs are much more likable. Here's a clip of Zappa's Why Does It Hurt When I Pee. Devo, unlike Zappa, was able to successfully use humor with clever subterfuge. They also wanted to take down the giants of rock in ways that wouldn't be immediately noticed by duller fans. Here's their version of Satisfaction. highest touted musical mentor would be none other than the purple ping-pong paisley panther man, Prince. The track LMLYP from their debut is a mashed-up cover of Alphabet Street and Shockadelica, and they have long played Prince songs during shows. reading i think it was dean ween and he was talking about how much how how huge prince was of an influence on him and the band and especially his guitars and as they got better they kind of realized they could actually make a realistic tribute to him but the the interviewer asked if they ever (laughs) got to meet prince and so he told the story when they're like 18 years old and they they got signed to twin tone 
they flew out to Minneapolis to, to play a showcase or something like that. And the label got them to be able to go to Paisley Park to get a tour because, you know, they were all into Prince. And so eventually they got, they got down to Studio A, which is Prince's personal studio. And they were looking and there was his, the Telecaster he used on Purple Rain. And then one of them looks over and he sees a music stand in the middle of the room and grabbed up a page of the lyrics and it was, he said it was definitely Prince's handwriting because, like, all the eyes had eyeballs. And he, the only thing he could make out was words that said, want to suck you off. <laughs> <laughs> and then as he started to read, the, like, the next line, both of them got grabbed by security guards and got thrown out <laughs> into the snow. <laughs> so, I don't know, it was kind of a funny story, but they were huge Prince fans and probably been one of their, their biggest influences throughout the years. And it's... You know, it's hard to, to imitate Prince in a way that doesn't sound just regurgitated. And they seem to switch up their sound from album to album so much, but you can still hear that influence. Mm-hmm. The Snail's Pace, Sonic Meyer, and grimy subject matter could be attributed to many things. The isolation, the poverty, the locale, the flies, the huffing of Scotchgard, the huffing of non-Scotchgard materials, the mono, the absurd sense of humor... Or just the typical early 20s ennui. Likely a combination of several of these factors. And while the pod is a challenging listen, especially the middle ten songs that in particular drag the listener through a world of hurt and disease and sewage, the songs show amazing wit, harmonic friendship, and grace in their own way. We'll discuss some of our favorites in a moment, but you have to admire how Freeman and Melchiondo are unflinching in their desire to make their music their way. Whether the pod was the pod through intent or accident is beside the point. Rather, it's a record that has an authenticity in its total comfort in being a forgery. Ween clearly love their influences, and while their tunes might come off as a loving send-up, it's far from merely being a parody. It was something of their own making that no one else would dare attempt, even if there was some way in hell they would have thought of it in the first place. Case in point, the album artwork, which is possibly the best classic album defacement since Meet the Residents. The guys took Dean Ween's mom's, her name was Eileen Ween, by the way, her old copy of The Best of Leonard Cohen and replaced the iconic photo of a dapper-looking folk singer with a pasted-on picture of their part-time bassist, Mean Ween, everybody gets a Ween name, I guess, wearing a gas mask that is a nitrous oxide-powered bong, as I'm sure we'd all clearly recognize. They altered the text and made one of the funniest and creepiest-looking jackets that is utterly unmistakable. In 1991, the pod was released on Kramer's Shimmy Disc. The album did fairly well for a slow-oozing, lo-fi, genre-jumping, dirge dance party. The band toured a lot and slowly built their cult following. In the wave of post-Nirvana major label hysteria, or Kurtanic Panic, Ween was signed to Elektra, who to their credit pretty much let Ween be Ween. The next two records, Pure Guava, also recorded at the pod but with less disease, and Chocolate and Cheese ended up helping the band be an early 90s MTV mainstay. Then they took a total left turn and recorded 12 Golden Country Greats that was alarmingly authentic as an homage to Countrypolitan sound, and even recorded with a crack Nashville session crew. 
This was all on the way to what we consider their masterwork, the yacht, prog, spongebob, square pantsian epic, the mollusk. Diener and Jeaner continue to tour and record and make failed pizza jingles much in the same fashion as they started. Two friends holding up together and fucking around until they make songs they like. Where did cheese go? I don't know. Where did cheese go? I don't know. I don't know. Where did cheese go? Back to the pot. Now, at nearly 80 minutes and 23 songs, there is no way to cover all the songs as much as they deserve. Playing the record start to finish is a good way to achieve a fever dream catatonia in the uninitiated. So we just wanted to clip a few of our favorite songs to let you look at those delicious sweet peas nestled inside the pot. Let us find the best kernels of corn to eat from the pile of poop this album is pretending to be. If you want the first song on your record to make people immediately turn it off, a chronically repeating blues intro riff with a marbled mouth mumbling of strap on the jammy pack is a pretty good bet to do the trick. Listening to it all the way is like answering a riddle required for entrance to the dungeon by some trollish gatekeeper outfitted in a fanny pack full of illicit paraphernalia. Dr. Rock is a rip-roaring tribute to the gods of hard rock. The vocal gimmick, which works really well, is taken from the butthole surfers, as are most of the guitar parts. That said, it's certainly peppier than any of the comparable surfer songs. They nearly out Gibby. Gibby. Guess how many songs on this record use the lyric, pork roll, egg, and cheese? Four. Which is only like 17% of the song, so it's not too heavy-handed, I suppose. We keep expecting them to put the lime in the coconut, darn Frank. Which is the first of these four pork roll, egg, and cheese songs. It features a guitar solo that churns like a chainsaw carving through a thick slice of head cheese.
Sorry, Charlie sounds like John Wesley Harding-era Dylan that was marinated in pork brains and milk gravy. It's pretty tasty, but you still feel strange for enjoying it. That's what I had for dinner last night. Asado answers the age-old question of how much change do you get from a 20 when ordering $16.07 worth of Mexican fast food? You get $16.07. Monomath. Can I get a basket? I told you about the basket of chips. I'd like a large iced tea. Two, uh, two large iced teas. Okay, that'll be 16 or 7. Uh, 20? Okay. This is 16 or 7 to change. Alright, okay. I like a basket of chips, a beef chimichanga with a side of sour cream. I like some guacamole. Sounding something like a track that got stuck in a time loop between junk shop glam and the invention of punk rock, Captain Fantasy is the byproduct of Mark Bolin being eaten by a T-Rex. One of the crispier songs on the pod. Often introduced as their ode to Phil Collins, Demon Sweat is a deep inhalation of all that's in the air tonight. So long as tonight is when your scrotum has succumbed to gangrene. Better than letting a man drown, though, right, Phil? Molly is a nutty song. It sounds like a twee version of Butthole Surfer's American Woman. I was reading the lyrics and there's a disparity between sights. One said, cough me a glob of hardened mercy and I'll zip it. And the other, cough me a glob of hardened moosey and I'll zip it. I don't know which I prefer. I wonder what Eddie Dingle thinks. 
And they got like hard and boosy. I always, yeah, I'll always go moosey. <laughs> Can you taste the waste? Is, in this instance, not a rhetorical question. The track Mononucleosis is the phlegmy heart of the album. You have to hand it to a song that sounds like a disease not an easy feat. But the lyrics actually are a sweet, thoughtful, caring get-well card to a bromantic partner who's stuck in a sweaty mucus bed. The way the line, oh dude, is sung tugs at my gooey hot cheese-like heartstrings. And I think it implies that Mandy the cat might have mono also. I didn't know that was possible. Maybe it was all the sweetbreads and offal she ate. Alone was originally conceived as a cover of Robin Hitchcock's brilliant neo-psych classic, Bones in the Ground. However, Ween traded in the Sid Barrett sound for the Sid Haig sound. Then they had no needs to pay royalties, which means there's more Scotchgard pocket change. Here are both Bones and Alone. Vera, my sweet, I would offer you some meat In exchange for a good loaf of wax I would smear it on you and on all your apples too If I thought it would help you relax Roll Egg and Cheese is the closest thing to a hit. The vocal manipulation that would become a trademark mask forms a perfectly tasty Ruddles-esque pop trip. You must not succumb.
The stallion would become an iconic emblem of the Ween lineage. The first two parts make appearances on this record. It's really more of a state of mind than an actual spirit animal. Or maybe just an excuse to practice expletive gymnastics. Best not to fuck with the stallion, Mong. In the end, it all sounds like an inside joke that maybe you don't understand, and wouldn't get even if you could. You're left questioning, are they a joke or are they serious? If they're a joke, should we think it's funny too? Or are they laughing at us? Maybe your intoxication level is too low, or your white blood cell count is too high to fully grasp what these scatological savants are playing at. Ween is a band that you are glad exists out there, giggling in the corners, waiting to tear down the monuments to rock and roll that we all ridiculously construct. And I imagine they would even have an especially good time defacing their own monument. So, Joe, did you listen to it in one sitting? I did, yes. What What was your experience of listening to the whole almost 80-minute piece in one sitting? I honestly thought it went by much faster than I was expecting. I had never listened to it all in one sitting, and I don't think I'd ever even heard the whole album. But it went by really fast. I liked it a lot. I wasn't sure whether I was going to, but it was enjoyable for me. Yeah, it was It was a lot of fun to revisit it. I probably hadn't heard the record, gosh, 15 years maybe. I think we're both cool with Ween. I don't know if either of us would go out and say that we are huge Ween fans. And Ween fans get, they're pretty cult-like as far as the depths of which they love Ween. I'm a really big fan of their song, Buenos Tardes Amigo, and the Blarney Stone. And a lot of the Mollusk. The Mollusk is fantastic, yeah. I've listened to the Mollusk several times more recently than than this, but... uh, and you said that you kind of shied away from them at the beginning. I shied away from Ween because I don't know what it is about their fan, their cult fan following. I mean, I'm a fan of a lot of bands that have cult followings, and I know that a lot of the fans are terrible, and the Ween fans just didn't seem like a group I wanted to be a part of. I think they're really funny, and they're really clever, but I didn't really care for their fans very much, and I... They also sort of reminded me of those two guys who created South Park, and I don't really like them. It's kind of got like that 90s frat boy juvenile humor that is not as subversive or irreverent than people think it is. But Weed makes up for that in being such good songwriters. Like even in this album, where there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on with the sound, their songs are fantastic. 
that Sorry Sorry Charlie song, mm-hmm. and Mononucleosis too. If you kind of strip away all the layers of stuff added to it, those are just really kind of gorgeous tunes. I like the way the whole album sounds. I think Sludge might be one of my favorite subgenres. <laughs> Did you check out how much this record cost to buy? Ween records from before they went to Electra are incredibly expensive. Even after they went to Electra, a lot of them are expensive. The Electra ones too? Some of them. Okay. Their early albums, no matter what, are crazy expensive. They just haven't been reissued very much. And when they were reissued, it was on Plane Records. And they are really known for being incredibly erratic, to the point of more than half of their pressings not sounding very good. Even those ones on Plane are really going for a lot, and you're taking a huge gamble getting one of those. This particular album was actually a recommendation by somebody on Instagram, Arliss, or a.k.a. DJ Grant, I don't know his real name, but he kind of mentioned that he'd like to hear our take on on the pod, you know, in the view of the other Isolation records, and we kind of read about it and said, oh, this might be a fun one to do. I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't listened to the record in a long time by that point, so... Thank you so much for the recommendation, and um, we hope it satisfies your needs for our <laughs> unique take on um, this record. I didn't even know the story behind this album and how it might fit with the isolation records we've covered, so that's this is great. So thank you, Arliss, for the recommendation. All right, let's uh, hear a couple songs. I'll never be a boy. My song for this episode is by a band called the Ebony Rhythm Band, and the title is Drugs Ain't Cool. I'm getting high 
right. That was Drugs Ain't Cool by the Ebony Rhythm Band. That was originally out on a uh, single, 1969, on Lamp Records. It got reissued by Now Again Records, who does a bunch of bunch of cool stuff. And it's just a great kind of funky, dirty R&B song about the dangers of drugs, even though it kind of makes drugs sound pretty cool. It is a little misleading. And apparently they won $800. They're from Indianapolis. And apparently they won like a anti-drug songwriting contest, won like $800 and got to play this big, you know, showcase show in front of City Hall or something. And of course they were all just stoned and, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. So, um, So basically the Ebony Rhythm Band was the studio band for that Lamp Records, and so they recorded with a lot of people. The only single they put out was was this one, and they eventually changed their name to the Ebony Rhythm Funk Campaign uh, in the 70s, and they recorded a lot more under that name. So really, really great, fun song, and I figured with the message is a good reminder that we do not endorse the use of Scotchgard huffing. By any means, at Highway Hi-Fi. No, there are other brands that are a lot less expensive. And we'll do the same thing. We'll post some links. My song tonight is by PJ Harvey, and it is called When Under Ether." <laughs> That was PJ Harvey with her hilarious song, When Under Ether, from the album White Chalk, released in 2007 on Island Records. 
This one is kind of a downer, very different from what we've been talking about earlier, and I feel a little bad about ending the show with this song, but P.J. Harvey sings this one and a lot of the White Chalk album, which is one of the darkest albums she's done, if not the darkest. She sings it in a really high register. It's almost ghost-like. It kind of adds a frightening chill to the song and on many of the songs. And one thing I didn't know about it is that the lyrics of the song use, and the title, use lines from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets section about East Coker. I think that's the part three of the Four Quartets. And East Coker is very close to where Harvey grew up. The specific lines are, Or when, under ether, the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. So those are our songs for the show. With these isolation shows, we are just doing one song each. These are a lot shorter, a little different from what we normally do. All right. Well, want to uh, say hi to a couple people. Um, Peter from, I think he's from Sweden. He's uh, reached out and said he enjoys the show. And so we just wanted to kind of say hi to Peter. Uh, He has a webzine that he said he was going to write about the show on as a recommended music podcast. It's going to be in Swedish, so he could just be bashing us and we would have no idea. But I think he appreciates that English is our second language, too. (laughs) It's my third or fourth when I've done Scotchgard. (laughs) So anyways, thanks, Peter, for the for the nice words and the write up. And hopefully you're evangelizing Highway Hi-Fi to all all the great people of Sweden. Another shout-out we want to send, I guess, is to the Instagram handle Fewer Owls, who are a band, a pretty good band from what we were we were listening to some of their stuff. We like it. It's, a, it's kind of a psychobilly sound, and I don't see, I don't think either of us have found actually any albums to buy, but we'll post a link to their site. They put a video out recently, uh, which is really cool, so... But they seem to be big fans of the show, so we wanted to say thanks for listening to them. And one more is uh, Colin, who uh, I think sometimes goes by Janky, or Janky Painting. Uh, so anyways. So do I. <laughs> he's uh, he's reached out a couple times, so want to say hi to him, too. We appreciate everybody who contacts us uh, and everybody who doesn't contact us but listens. Um, and you could help us out by uh, you know spreading the word or giving a review or, you know whatever, just listen and enjoy. Uh, we do always want to encourage you to spend some of your hard-earned cash on musicians or record uh, companies, record stores, you know, people people who make and get you the music that we love, who are really hurting at this time. Yeah, if you have any extra money and uh, get yourself some good music or uh, support them, make a donation, that would be great. And check us out on social media on instagram our handle is highway hi-fi pod as it is on twitter same handle uh, we're also on facebook you can search us there and you can email us if you'd like highway hi-fi podcast at gmail.com just let us know you're out there say howdy whatever we'd love to hear from you yeah and we want to thank our podcast network pantheon podcast lots of awesome shows about music all sorts of different stuff so Go ahead and cruise on over there and see if there's maybe not another podcast or two that might tickle your fancy, so to speak. 
And again, we appreciate everybody listening. Hope everybody is doing well, staying safe, and we'll see you next time. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.